0: Welcome to
1: the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Risa Brooks, who's one of three editors of the new book, Reconsidering American Civil-Military Relations, the Military, Society, Politics, and Modern War. This book was published in 2021 by Oxford University Press and is also edited by Lionel Beener and Daniel Maurer. Um, although they were not able to join us today to discuss it, um, so my my friend and colleague down the road, uh, Risa Brooks will will fill in for uh, Lionel and Dan. Um, and the first question that I have for you, Risa, after I welcome you to the podcast, um, is to ask you a little bit about yourself and your two co-authors and how you all came to this particular project. So, welcome to the New Books in Political Science podcast.
0: Thanks, Lily. It's great to be with you today and to talk about this book. I've been really looking forward to it. Um, So this book grew out of a conference that was held at West Point several years ago now on civil-military relations. At the time, Lionel was working for one of the research institutes called the Modern War Institute, um, and I was an adjunct scholar as well, um, and Dan eventually too. um, And the, the conference sort of covered a variety of different themes related to civil-military relations, and I think Lionel was really the inspiration behind the idea of doing an edited book. Um, Lionel has had a really um, extensive career. He has a journalist and a variety of things. He's doing some think tank work and program work now, um, and has now left West Point. And Dan is an active duty um, military lawyer, um, and I think maybe retiring soon as well. Um, But they were great to work with, and we had sort of a a tremendous um, group of people that contributed to the book, and um, all with sort of slightly different expertise on US civil-military relations.
1: And, and so the overview of this book and a lot of what you're, you're sort of diving into is this idea, this concept, if you will, of civil military relations, particularly in the United States, where we have constitutionally um, you know, sort of mandated civilian control of the military. Um, and that's something that a lot of people don't really think of very much. Um, but you all are sort of diving into that a bit, um, and also discussing essentially the way that the current military um, is set up. Um, and and your, one of your chapters early in the book is a kind of foundational chapter where you take on the, the, um, the late, the late Sam Huntington, um, and his theory with his theories with regard to civil military relations. Can you talk a little bit about why Huntington is still in the conversation? Um, and perhaps where we are going now, you know, 50, 60 years after his seminal work on the soldier in the state.
0: Yeah, definitely. So Huntington's book, The Soldier and the State, was published in 1957, I think is remarkable in just, you know, on the most basic level. Most books from that era or older are viewed as artifacts, as sort of pieces of anthropology or sociology. And this book is still read as a current sort of piece of scholarship. Now, it's heavily critiqued challenge, but it's still engaged with in a way that's quite unusual. And I think part of the reason that that is, is because the book has had a a huge framing effect on civil military relations. I can't really think of a a similar example, maybe in international politics, realism and something like that. But it's really set the boundaries. I think also it's had a huge normative impact, meaning it shapes not just, it's not just and merely a study of, you know, what civil military relations look like and why. It's a study or an argument about how they should be organized. So it's a normative framework. And the staying power of those ideas, I think that normative component is because it's, it, it both reflected and now reinforces a set of norms shaping The way that U.S. military personnel, especially the officers within the the institution, view themselves, how they understand what it means to be an officer and what sort of dictates or what standards of behavior um, they feel they should adhere to. So it's got this sort of constitutive and regulative function as a norm that comes from this book and the ideas that he propounds in that book. the the main sort of core concept in there that has been so appealing and foundational is called objective control of the military. Um, basically, what this is, is it's a model of how to organize relationships between the military and the political or civilian leadership in, in the country. Um, and Huntington argued that there needed to be this siloing of the political and the military, whereby the military would concentrate on all things military and politicians would make decisions about how to use military force. They might meet at the apex, but still the military needed to stay in its lane and sort of abstain from political thinking and political commentary. What's so remarkable about this is that Today we hear there's a lot of discussion about military involvement in partisan politics, but Huntington's sort of um, argument was that the military needed to abstain from all things political, including thinking about the political aspects of military activity. This clearly has had, you know, innumerable effects on shaping how civil-military relations work, and, and I argue very critically in a lot of my work about um, how those norms have been really detrimental in ways unforeseen by Huntington at the time.
1: And and those particular norms that you're talking about with regard to, you know, again, this is this is how many Americans and people actually also outside of the country look at how the U.S. military operates. You know, it is it is this elite fighting force. Um, it is considered one of the best, if not the best, in the world. Um, and that we have this long history of this, you know, as you say, the siloing, um, but you also are sort of in the book and your work in particular, are taking on some of Huntington's proposals or ideas. Now Huntington is writing the book originally in 1957. We're in the cold war. Um, the United States has, you know, sort of been out of world war II for a decade now. Um, and, and we're moving into this sort of constant military footing, even if it's not a hot war. Um, and, and that hasn't really stopped. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how some of Huntington's ideas are, in fact, detrimental to the, the military functional, fun- functional capacity um, within our political system?
0: Absolutely. So first off, maybe I'll say some of the things that I think Huntington's norms do a good job of. And one of them is it does create this baseline sort of reflexive idea that the military isn't supposed to be involved in domestic politics on the day-to-day. And I think that basic impulse is a good one and has helped restrain some of the um, potentially corrosive things that could occur with the partisan, partisan dynamics within the military. Having said that, I think that a lot of Huntington's um, concepts are really working at cross-purposes. And that's sort of the central thrust of my critique, that there are these sort of paradoxes within it. And I'll give you an example of one of them. So Huntington defines um, professionalism as being apolitical. Those two things are synonymous, um, almost tautological, and some people have actually argued that. Um, And one of the sort of implications of that is that it creates this um, sense that if one is a professional, and all military officers tend to view themselves as such, that anything they do is inherently, by definition, apolitical and by by being apolitical, that means that that provides a a cloak, a shield, or a a sort of way a, a self conceit almost at times for behaviors that are in fact quite political in the sense that they have political ramifications. I call this blind spots for lack of sort of a more elegant term, but in the sense that you can, you can find these examples of really partisan. Um, politicization going on within the attitudes, especially in survey research on U.S. military officers. And yet, if you were to ask most of them up front about this, they would say, no, we're completely apolitical. And part of this observation actually came from just seeing and watching this dynamic repeat itself in my interactions with military officers, that there was something very strange going on here. And so, I argue that the apolitical norm in the way that it's constructed, which is not about examination and judgment, it's about a reflexive abstination from all things political, furthers and promotes this blind spot, which enables political behavior um, in this way. Um, And that's one of the sort of core insights. Some of the other things that Huntington um, enabled two is he has this idea of the military mind. Now you we gotta remember he's writing the nineteen fifties um, and he talks about it as a small c conservative mindset. Um, and he contrasts this in part of the problematic, part of the the impetus for riding soldier of the state is he worried about, as he saw it, that this conservative military with this sort of particular mindset wasn't going to do well in a liberal society and how to reconcile some of that. I think that problem is an interesting problem and an important one that can be thought of. A lot of sociologists think about aspects of that kind of dynamic in different ways, but he had a normative argument too, which was that the, um, Liberal society should look up to or emulate the values um, being sort of perpetrated within the military institution, that military culture had things to be admired. And that sort of um, almost sort of attitude of superiority has been a part of or a piece of a larger dynamic among some military officers a cultural trend whereby they think that military culture is superior to american societal culture it's more moral it's more disciplined it's more righteous it's more patriotic and surveys have shown that some subset now not all but some subset of military officers repeatedly over time Believe this. And that is really enabled by the embracing of those Huntingtonian norms, too. Um, it's really a paradox in the sense that professionalism as a core tenet in any profession is about service to a client and responsibility. And those ethics are repeated over and over. And yet you have this weird dynamic of superiority and a framework that enables that. I think those are two, there's other, I think, problems, but those are two of the sort of key ones that I flesh out in some of my work.
1: And, and Huntington, you, you provide a discussion of You know, sort of the soldier in the state and its, its long shadow um, in terms of U.S. military, civilian, mili- military engagement. But the whole book is is to some degree building on the foundation of, you know, this has shaped the military and our culture towards the military for. The entirety of uh, basically the Cold War and post-Cold War period, uh, which is a long stretch of time, um, when the military has also been very active and and well-funded, um, and so I would love it if you could go through the the four different sections of the book just to lay out some of the other. Um, engagements with the uh, Huntingtonian sort of model or theories, and, and to some degree where some of the research is going. So if we want to start with the section that, you know, your first chapter about Huntington or critique of Huntington um, begins with, and then move through the other sections to sort of look at the different, the different not only authors, but the way that the, the sort of book is set up. Um, and the thrust of the arguments that that you all are making. So the first section um, that I really want to sort of trace, and I'm I'm missing my table of contents here, so maybe help me out. Um, the military's <laughs> role and responsibility. Yes. Thank you.
0: Okay. <laughs> so maybe Lily, what I'll do is. Sort of talk about the first three sections really are supposed to get at the different actors or domains of civil military relations. And maybe I'll just step back and sort of say what are civil military relations? Um, really, it's a it's a set or of a, a variety of relationships that have to do with the military, relationships between the military leadership and civilian leadership, say in the executive or legislative branch, um, the presidency and Congress in the US, um, relationships between the military and society, whether that's um, as an institution or as individual members of the military and society, and ultimately. Also, the relationship between society and the civilian leadership as it pertains to the military as well, and how society is holding to account those civilians the president, Congress, um, for their oversight and control of the military. And so the book is about, is sort of the first three sections are organized, those three, th- those actors. Um, the first one, the military's roles, I think that's most intuitive. And it talks about sort of what are the norms, the Huntingtonian norms, what are sort of the other normative framework that should, does, and should guide the military, um, and some of the dilemmas of the mutual obligations that. Um, military officers are sort of um, shaped by and obligated to um, as well. The second section talks about the civilian leadership's roles and responsibilities. And, you know, it may seem really obvious to most listeners that they should be included, but in fact, there's far less research on the civilian leadership side and what shapes its different civilian presidents' relationships with the military and how they manage it. Um, and what their obligations are. There's assertions, a general sense of that, but there's not a lot of understanding of that. We don't even have a lot of understanding of what civilian control is and how it varies. I mean, there is some good research going on now about those topics, but people don't even share the same concept of what civilian control is. I'll, I'll give you a brief example of that. Sometimes people talk about civilian control as just the ability to make decisions. So does who's in charge, the authority dimension? Does the president make a decision in a country? Does the executive or does the military make its own decisions? Civilian control though in a democracy is, is much more than that. It's about the infrastructure and institutions through which civilian preferences get shaped and how military the military institution relates to the civilian institutions of the state. It's about how easily and effectively a civilian leader's preferences about the military organization or about the U.S. use of force are being realized by the military itself. That's a lot more complicated, but I think that's really what it is as opposed to just does somebody follow orders or not? And so that section of the book is sort of trying to get at some of those issues. There is a lot more to be done on that though, I will say. And then the last section, I think, is where we've seen some of the most lively research, and it's reflected in the book, but also beyond on the public's roles and responsibility. So what do the what does the public think about the military? What does the public think about civilian control? What does the public think about how much? civilian political leaders should be deferent to the military or not. Um, When does the civilian leader's efforts to appropriate the military's um, social esteem affect and shape responses to foreign policy decisions by that political leader, all sorts of questions like that. And some of the que- the content of that section of the book is getting at some of those themes. The last one is a bit of a shift. And it, it's sort of, what are both the implications for civil military relations of sort of modern war, meaning the kinds of conflicts that militaries are involved in today, especially the U.S. military, and how do those conflicts go back and then shape civil military relations? And that part of the book gets at some themes that I think, again, there's a lot to be done here that has been received less attention than some of the others, um, which has to do with, um, for example, I'll talk about my own chapter in that section, trying to understand things like How artificial intelligence or robots, um, these things are going to reshape or affect how the civilian bureaucracy, the civilian political leadership relates to the military leadership and military bureaucracy. How is that transformative? How is it challenging to the notion of the military profession, especially because professions are based on having this sort of exclusive expertise and technology inevitably invites civilian experts into that domain. So it's sort of fleshing that out. And then others in that section are looking at sort of sort of low profile attacks, or um, sort of looking at the Niger events, um, insurgency, things of that nature, or cyber, or what's called gray zone activities as well. And so that's basically the structure of the book. It's meant to sort of tease out different themes, I think, more than sort of be exhaustive or conclusive about them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I did find in reading through it that it was a really good overview of a lot of these important areas for consideration when we think about the role of the military in a democracy um, in the United States. And there was one chapter that also touched on it in other countries as well. Um, But in particular, it really is focused on the United States. And so I wanted to ask you in terms of um, things that I was particularly interested in, (laughs) if I can ask you, because you, you noted this It was noted in the introduction and then it's noted in the chapter about the fact that there isn't a lot of research on like the secretary of defense and the role of the secretary of defense. Um, And this is something that, you know, as I started to think about it, I was like, yeah, there's a giant hole. Uh, when one starts to think about, you know, there's all the study of the president and the secretary of state and, of course, attorney general. Um, And we've had a secretary of defense or secretary of war since the beginning of the republic. Um, We've been at war since the beginning of the republic. (laughs) This seems like something that should perhaps have had more study.
0: I'm so thrilled you asked me that question. And I have sort of all sorts of thoughts about it. And I think part of it goes back to the sociology of the discipline of political science, which is that American poli- So, so a lot of my work it, on civil military relations is actually either U S American politics or comparative politics, but I'm stuck in international relations. And the reason that is, is because militaries have to do with killing and violence and so it gets shuffled off there even though substantively it's much more engaged in 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 a lot of respects with american politics especially my stuff on the us and other stuff on the us but there is a weird The thing that happens, and I'll give you a really concrete example, when some of my colleagues, I've got some papers that I'm working on U.S. civil military relations, and we get really puzzled, like, should we send these to U.S.-focused journals? Because they get rejected mostly, because they're like, well, this isn't really what we do. You know, we don't need to know about the military. And I think even in comparative this has also happened, although I think it's changing somewhat. So for years there'd be books, a huge revival on authoritarianism and understanding authoritarianism. And what did the people study? And this is no discredit, these are important things too. You know, they discovered the things that look like democracy in Authoritarianism. So they, they I mean, they would study those. They would study things like parliaments or things like that. And they didn't study the coercive apparatus. And then the rest of us that did that were sort of marginal in our own little domain. Now that mainline comparativists are doing a lot more of that, but I don't think that's happened on the U.S. side as much. And so it, it's very so so long answer to come back to the Secretary of Defense. I don't think that the military, as an institution, is integrated with the study of other U.S. institutions, um, and I find, you know, as you've probably pick, picked up, this very to be very strange and also very counterproductive. I think it's counterproductive for the people who study U.S. politics because this is such a major institution; they could learn things from it and understand better what they're studying, and depending on the research question, of course. But it's also bad for the civil-military relations folks because some of the things that have to do with civil-military relations are generalizable to the way that other institutions work. Some aren't, and some are. And so we lack a comparative understanding of the US military compared with other US government institutions. And I don't actually, even as I say that, I don't think I've even ever quite thought about it like that, but I think that that's a missing link. Um, that I think I would learn a lot more if I knew more about U.S. institutions. But I didn't. wasn't asked to study them because I was in IR because that's what you do if you study the military. Of course. <laughs> so it's a weird, you know, all disciplines have their own quirks. And this is one of the quirks of political science.
1: But it also makes sense given, you know, given the Huntington framework that silos the military as an institution off to the side, it is separate. It is not like the State Department. It's not like you know the Department of Justice. It's not like the Department of Agriculture because, as you note, it's involved with violence and killing people, and it has its own kind of, um, you know, structure and society and and understanding of of itself, and so it's alone
0: yes and that's a brilliant insight right yeah this bifurcation mirrors the huntingtonian model right this strange split and and i guess maybe that's another reason to be critical of huntington <laughs>
1: That that the U.S. military should be integrated into American political institutions that we study as American political institutions as people, you know, you know, this as as somebody who studies the presidency. You know, we look at Eisenhower and he set up the White House to mir- to mimic what he understood from leading the military. Um, and so when we look at the norms associated with how presidents set up their White Houses, there's an Eisenhower model and there's a Clinton model and so on. And, um, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot there. Right. A lot to be thought about. Yeah.
1: And, and yeah. so what do we learn about the secretary of defense, at least a little bit in the chapter that is specifically focusing on that particular role within this larger structure of civil military relationships?
0: Yes. So Mara Carlin, who wrote the chapter on civilian control, is now in the office of the Secretary of Defense in a pretty high level position. And she's a just an incredible person, but also, you know, a really, really effective at what she does. Um, and I don't think even for somebody who'd studied civil military relations for years and years, I still am learning how that actually gets exercised. I have a good... Alice, friend, who's also has a chapter in this book, is is a good friend of mine, and she, um, she, you know, has had a couple of very high level positions in the Office of Secretary of Defense, and she's writing a book about civilian control, and I can see her still working through her understanding of what it is, and so yeah, it, it, and it's so amazing because here you have this most well funded, most powerful institution domestically and internationally and yet there's these huge holes in our understanding of how the basic institution really works but and questions normatively of how it should work as well and so yeah it's 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 one of the reasons why this field is so interesting to me is that there's just so much yet to be learned about it
1: and and i wanted to ask you uh, a question specifically about something that has been very much in the news particularly this was the case during the trump administration that the third section of the book takes up which is society's relationship and understanding of the military and your colleagues who have written the chapters there have done some survey research that was really interesting and you you noted also that your own experience sort of talking to officers in the military you get sort of two different answers to questions. Um, And so I was wondering what it is that we can understand about Americans' relationship and understanding of the United States military in terms of surveys that were taken, trying to dig, dig at those kinds of questions.
0: So what do we learn from some of those surveys about, um, in particular, I think a bunch of the surveys, um, there's a lot of there, There's a variety of directions, but I'll, I'll focus on one I think that's gotten a lot of attention and focus. Going back to the late 1990s, there was sort of a, a state of the art survey done um, by Peter Fever and Dick Cohn um, called the TIS survey that looked at a variety of attitudes about um, civilian control, about partisan politics. And that has also been followed on with more recent surveys. Heidi Urban, a colleague of mine as well, has done a bunch of those um, surveys. And one of the things that we learn from those is that the norms about abstaining from sort of political conversation, meaning domestic political conversation about electoral politics or debates in the policies, in the public sphere, um, sort of hold and you don't see active duty military participating in that but that under that sort of under that veneer there's a lot of Sort of pushback against the beliefs that the military should be nonpartisan, and beliefs that the military um, that military officers should be able to say partisan things, not understanding or thinking that that's important, not even really engaging with civ- civil military relations and seeing it as an important topic. I mean, there's layers and layers there of issues percolating underneath, and. This is an issue that sort of civil military relations people have thought about a lot. But I think in an era when there's so much civilian politicization, meaning efforts by some political factions to draw the military into politics, either as their allies or as a sort of an object for them to attack, to appeal to their base, that it makes puts a premium on those norms. puts a lot of pressure on those norms. And we haven't seen sort of a breakdown in them, a gross breakdown. We've seen retired officers, Michael Flynn and a few others who've done this, but not from the active duty military, where you see overtly um, partisan, co- you know, partisan statements toward these civilians who are trying to elicit these actions. Um, And I think that a lot of that survey research is showing that there's a lot going on and we all need to be paying a lot more attention to this because this, both because of the military's sort of, you know, role as, you know, the Weberian role is sort of the monopoly on the use of force, more or less, um, and sort of the domestic political influence that the institution and its senior leaders have, they have this role, if nothing by their inaction, in sustaining democracy. And therefore, understanding what the attitudes and the beliefs, whether or not they're acted upon always is really critically important. And I would say, you know, just to circle circle back to the point of what this book is, I mean, this book is about, here's a bunch of issues, go pick some research questions and work on them, right? And those introducing those surveys and that material and sort of getting some of those ideas on the table, if it encourages more people to pay attention, I think we've We've accomplished some of the goals of that.
1: I wanted to ask you, because we've already talked about a little bit of, you know, some of the surprising nature of some of the conclusions just in terms of absent scholarship. Um, as you and your co-editors were receiving the chapters from the various writers and revisions from the from the original conference, was there anything that was particularly surprising in terms of the research? And if so, what was it?
0: Yeah. So I think what's most surprising is how much consensus there is that there's a lot more turbulence and concerning features of civil-military relations than we hear about. Um, Pretty much across the board, there is this sense of these norms are under pressure. There are. Does the apolitical Huntingtonian approach? How is it undermining? Or in different ways, how is it contrary to the health of democracy? Or um, you know, in all the ramifications of that, that sense that there's some urgency to be paying attention. And I and I don't think that's necessarily something we would have known ahead of time. Um, there's this kind of odd debate about whether civil military relations is in crisis and this term crisis gets batted around in this context and people will talk about that or not. I think, you know, I leave that aside. I say what we're showing in this book and what everyone's argument is, is that this topic looks like it's fine until it's not. It's one of those topics, and we need to be paying attention because the stakes are large, and, um, and I guess that sense of urgency in different respects would be the main sort of takeaway of the book.
1: And I, I I mean, I do find that really interesting in terms of, you know, what we've seen in in the discussions, particularly among some of the people who had been military, who served in the Trump administration. Um, And, and, you know, after particularly events like walking through Lafayette Square and so forth, where there was then a, oh, I probably should have been doing that. Um, because that, that was not quite where civilian military relations are supposed to be. Um,
0: Yeah, there was a lot of um, unfortunate teaching moments for civil military relations in the past few years. And among them was certainly when General Milley walked through Lafayette Square and stood in front of the church for the photo op. And then he went and gave the address at the National Defense University sort of graduation and talked about how the importance of, as he put it, the apolitical role, meaning for him, not being involved in those kind of domestic political moments. And, um, and yeah, I mean, we saw that. I think another key point was that the, all of the machinations that went on with why the National Guard didn't immediately go to the Capitol on January 6th, um, there are different views of that. We could have a whole podcast on just that. And I still think we don't know exactly. And maybe I hope we do someday know exactly what happened, but it definitely, um, we did see a lot of political awareness by the senior military leadership there, and there it wasn't all positive, but it may have been based on a decision to avoid a worse outcome. I don't know. I mean, it's one of the working hypotheses anyway. So, so yeah, I think just to sort of follow up with your point, yeah, there's a lot going on here, and hopefully Americans won't have to be paying too much attention to civil military relations in the next two years. Although it's good for business, I do have to say
1: <laughs> it's good for business for you and your your, your colleagues. Exactly. Although
0: I really, I don't know if I really want that kind of business. <laughs> <I understand. laughs> There's other things I'd rather do, honestly.
1: I understand. Yeah. One of the points that is drawn out by some of the survey research that remains fascinating. Um, and important, I think, as we think about civil military relations is the fact that Americans hold the United States military in extremely high regard, especially in compared to other government um, agencies, organizations, institutions, individuals, um, that the, the U.S. military occupies a particular space in terms of respect and admiration. Um, and I was, I was wondering how that also fits into the sort of broader... Sort of understanding of the role of the military in a democracy, which is always a touchy and complicated one, um, because democracies are are not authoritarian; they're not supposed to be, at least. Um, and the military is a, a sort of institution that is structured in a very, you know, sort of I don't want to use totalitarian or authoritarian, but that's how it's structured, um, and its role is to, you know, as you say, manage violence. Yeah,
0: it is. Yeah. So I've thought a lot about this and it's, it's a question. It's an object of fascination in particular among military audiences where they think about it a lot and they say, well, we're the most respected institutions. And, you know, there is this sort of puzzlement and like every institution you want to maintain that. I mean, that's sort of natural, right? Um I think that where I see the democratic problem is in the second part of what you said. It's not the military, the confidence in the military. And I think confidence in institutions, and that's how the most of the Gallup polling is framed, is a good thing in general, including in the military. It's that there's not confidence in Congress. Because to hold that institution into account, you need to have people thinking and supporting Congresses, you using intrusive oversight. And so that's the missing dynamic. That's the pathology is that, you know, if you have this, the military institution being so influential, that disincentivizes Congress and creates potential political costs from asking questions, because there are serious issues going on within the military institution that are, Bad for the country, bad for the institution, bad for the individuals that serve within it, and bad for civilian society. And those things need to be fleshed out and dealt with. And so it's that disproportionate aspect that I think is the most detrimental to democracy. I would say, interestingly, one things that some another sort of point. Um, sometimes people think of support for the military as this, as confidence in the military is the same as sort of militaristic societal um, attitudes. I'm not, I think that's a fascinating question, the relationship between those. But sometimes, but sort of the reverence for all things military, whether it's in fashion, at sporting events, etc., I think those attitudes are actually can be really quite negative for the military institution, in part because it leads people to think that they should use the military to solve all the problems <laughs> across the board. So I see those as separate phenomena and the relationship among them to be probably a complicated one. But I think in particular, the militarist attitudes in American culture are probably um in many cases, very negative for democracy, as I think they've proven to be in a lot of other places in the world historically.
1: Yeah. And it also brings in this question about the, the sort of um, pull towards the military as a kind of patriotism or nationalism that, you know, is not necessarily real patriotism or real nationalism,
0: Yes, actually, there's some really fascinating work on social desirability bias that shows that um, there is this tendency, people think the right answer is to say that they revere the military. And when in experimental conditions, they are in circumstances where they don't have that, they don't endorse those attitudes in the same degree. Um, and so it, it is kind of a trendy or faddish thing almost and I and I wonder about what that also says about the health of civil military relations and and the sort of facts of civil military relations as well.
1: And, and again, it, it gets to the this question of you know if you are disrespective of the military or disrespectful t- towards the military in any capacity, then, you know, you are a bad American, you're treasonous.
0: Which is, which is really ridiculous. And some of the most ardent sort of anti-Afghanistan or Iraq war people are the vets, honestly, especially not, uh, not the senior most, not sort of general officers, but below. There's a lot of angst there. And so this idea that you're somehow... Um, being un-American by criticizing how the military is used or criticizing or you know scrutinizing what it does and how well the institution is functioning or not somehow anti-american or anti-patriotic is ridiculous and you know I think that perversity, of societal attitudes is not serving the military that's the weird thing about it right that revering the military and yet paying no attention to it is you know really unhealthy for society Um, and unhealthy for the country and unhealthy for the military. So it's a no win. (laughs) (laughs) No win there.
1: And and interestingly (laughs) enough, if we want to go back to the founders, they actually put in the constitution that the military budget had to be looked at every two years. No Mm -hmm. other section of any institutions listed the same way. Yeah, (laughs) I know. There was a lot of Concern
0: about maintaining a large, um, they didn't use the term professional, but a large standing military, right? They wanted a citizen military and um, had seen militaries as instruments of tyranny. And so we're in this really ahistorical moment, too, in this idea of um, that's very contrary to the sort of foundational sense that civilian institutions should be supreme, over the military. And that has a long trend in, in American culture and has served the country well for a long time.
1: So Risa, now that you have this great book about all the problems going on between civilian military relations in the United States and elsewhere, what are you working on?
0: Oh, what am I working? So yeah, thank you for asking that. You know, I get these bees in my bonnet. I don't know if that makes sense, but I get these these compulsions about something I need to work on. And I haven't had one for a while, but the one I, I have is to work on the war in Afghanistan and to try to understand how dynamics within the U.S. military profession contributed to some of the problems that occurred in that war. And so I wrote one draft of a paper and it's not very good. It's kind of a long rant. And so now I'm rethinking and talking to people and um, working on that. And I think it's going to take a while, but um, it feels important to do. The Afghanistan war has been way too niche a topic and it needs to be brought out into um, the scholarly world and I, my work is very much on the cusp of scholarly work and public facing work. It's what I enjoy. It's the point of what I'm doing. And so it will really be that kind of work when I finish it, the next version, which is, I don't know when, <laughs> time off after this term, let me tell you. <laughs>
1: As with all things scholar scholarship associated with academics. Yes. It will come out eventually. <laughs> no. And, yes. and I hope if it's a book that you'll come talk to me about it on the new books and political science podcast and we can have a good chat. Um, so I want to thank Risa Brooks for joining me today. One of the three co-authors, along with Lionel Beener and Daniel Maurer, of Reconsidering American Civil-Military Relations, the Military Society, Politics and Modern War, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Is there a brick and mortar store? that you would like to give a shout out to?
0: Um, Yes, Boswell's books, (laughs) of course. I don't know if they have the book, but I would like to anyway. Well, they
1: have an online presence, so I bet they can get it.
0: (laughs) They do have an online presence and they're great. So do patronize them. Patronize? Patronize. 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 Thank you. (laughs) It's already been a long afternoon for me. (laughs) Yes. All right. Thank
1: you for joining me today, Risa. It's been a pleasure.
0: It really has been. Thank you so much, Lily.